0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thanks for listening, subscribing, downloading. Please let the people that you love in your life let them know about this program. Um, because we do appreciate you sharing um, the love when it comes to Future Proof. Uh, you can email them a link or, or let them know it's on, on on News Talk. We'd really appreciate it. Coming up on this week's programme, it is six years in the making, Ireland's first ever satellite. AirSat 1 will be taking to the skies at the end of this month as long as the rocket that's holding it on a SpaceX Falcon 9 doesn't explode, <laughs> which is, is not impossible, but um, it it is... Um, it it, it could happen. We're hoping it won't and we're hoping it all goes well because we'll be speaking to David McKeown, lead engineer at AirSat One, about all the effort that went into this and why it's so exciting for Ireland to at last have its own stake in space. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news and I'm joined in studio by Dr. Fergus McCullough from ICRAG and Dr. Oren Kennedy from
2: RCSI. You're both very welcome. Our first story has to do with supermelanin So, uh, yeah, this is a study carried out by a group of researchers in Northwestern University in the U.S., um, published in the uh, Journal of Nature, Regenerative Medicine. And it's about melanin, the chemical that's produced by cells called melanocytes in your skin, your hair, your eyes, and it gives colour or pigmentation to those organs. Now, its role in skin is probably what most people are familiar with. It actually has two roles there. The first is that it's really good at absorbing harmful UV rays. So it absorbs UV rays from the sun, and then it shuttles them or moves them to the surface of your skin. And, And that way it takes it away from the cells that, the UV um, waves could harm. And that's what we see as freckles or suntan or sunburn. The second thing that it does is that it scavenges free radicals, which sounds complicated. But what that means is if those UV rays do damage cells, those cells produce little bits off to the side. Imagine it like a glass that gets damaged and there's a chip off of it. That can do damage to the cell itself and other cells around it. And that's called, those are called free radicals. And melanin soaks those up right. and, and, and protects the skin in that way too. This group developed a synthetic cream, a nice, clear, easy cream to apply on your skin. And it's, uh, it's sort of like a super melanin. It does that job even better than natural melanin. So this study found that it's biodegradable, non-toxic, all that kind of stuff. It's clear, nice and easy to apply. Uh, Interestingly, they did this uh, on human skin in a dish, which I thought was a nice part of the study. So they have a little bit of human skin in a dish. They, <laughs> okay. da- they damaged it with a chemical that, that was to replicate sort of sunburn or damage or whatever. And then they used this cream and showed that it kind of it alleviates the damage and it reduces the inflammation. Uh, it was kind of convincing that it works quite well. Uh, and what, what is it exactly used for? I mean, is it used to treat sunburn yeah, so, or? So they say it can be a preventative thing. You can use it as a sort of a sunscreen enhancer as well as a treatment for after there has been damage. So it kind of has two functions from that point of view as well. So it's, uh, it's, it seems really interesting and it seems really useful. And um, the other thing, the last part of the story that this group um, were funded in the US by the Department of Defense, right? So they always love to have an own military uh, application as well, and they, they finished this paper talking about another application where they can use melanin to uh, make it up as a dye for clothing and then they can uh, dye military clothes to absorb, in the same way, absorb damaging uh, um, chemicals. And in this case, they have a plan to use this to absorb nerve gas. What? Yeah, so they they, they have (laughs) extended this idea and they're going to use it to dye clothing for a military application to make it absorb nerve gas and make it less harmful to soldiers wearing it. So there you go. Very interesting. And it seems very far-fetched. It sounds like someone has adapted their research to uh,
1: attract more defence funding. Um, Uh Our second piece um, has to do with fainting.
0: Yeah, so fainting is something that affects uh, about 50% of people over, over the course of their lives. Uh, I've certainly fainted once or twice before and it, it, it happens very fast and you don't know what's after happening. Um, but it's kind of long been a mystery as to like what is the mechanism that actually controls fainting. So they've long suspected that it's, it's basically like a sudden restriction in blood flow to the brain. But how that message got, say, from the heart to the brain has never really been found out until this week when a group of scientists from the University of California in San Diego, they discovered a neural pathway that actually controls the process. So what they did is they looked at the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is like this information superhighway of nerve cells um, that carry signals from the brain um, outward to the organs. And it's kind of like a secondary spine or something, or a spe- secondary spinal cord. Exactly, yeah. I mean, like the, the amount of information and signals that move through the neurons um, on the vagus nerve is astounding. But in particular, they looked at a group of neurons that cluster in the ventricles of the heart. So these are the lower chambers of the heart that pump out the blood. Um, and then they got, uh, they got some mice and they had developed a technique whereby they could shine blue light on specific neurons inside in the mice and and once the light was shone on them, those neurons were stimulated. And they looked at a particular set of neurons along that vagus nerve. And once the light was shone on them, the mice instantly keeled over and fainted. Wow. So that means that there's, there's, there is something happening there um, in these particular neurons. And they also um, noticed in the mice that like a lot of the typical sort of human characteristics of fainting, like um, where your pupils dilate, where your heart rate drops and where your breathing rate drops, all of those are replicated in the mice as well. Interestingly, when they, when they removed those neurons from the mice, they stopped fainting entirely. So there appears to be uh, something really important happening with this particular group of neurons and this particular mechanism. And they reckon that um, one of the reasons it's, it took so long to discover this is because neurosciences uh, Typically study the brain, and cardiologists typically study the heart, and fainting kind of involves both mm. so by looking at at what's happening in between, they reckon they've stumbled upon this this uh, uh this new mechanism that could explain fainting.
1: do we have any idea what the evolutionary benefit might be of fainting because it seems like a mechanism for something. Do we know
0: why it might be useful? yeah, so um I came across this, and so like one of the one of the sort of theories there is. Say in the case of bad news, right, and people faint from bad news. Do they? They do. Wow. Yeah, they do. Um, or they faint from like, the shock of receiving bad news. Is that it appears that your, your parasympathetic nervous system goes into overdrive to relax you because you've gotten this, you know, shock. shock um, um, but it appears to relax you too much and you faint. Very, very interesting, Fergus. And um, our third story,
2: Oren, has to do with willow. With willow bark, yeah. So the tree, willow uh, and the bark from it. So this study was done by a group of scientists in Finland in the yeah. University of Jyvaskyla, which I think I've... Excellently done. Yeah, it impen- no, was perfect. Yeah, 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 They found an extract from willow bark has potential as an antiviral medicine. So that might sound a bit uh, odd or a bit uh, outlandish, but actually willow bark has a history in this and it's already provided several medicines in the past, including a precursor to modern aspirin. Mm. which most people um, might not know about. And uh, so in this case, they wanted to apply this to viruses. So we all know at this stage that viruses are sort of tricky things to work with, and there's lots of different categories of them. Two forms that they studied in this uh, work was the coronavirus. That's the general category that COVID-19 is in. And um, they're characterised by the, the ring or the corona that they have around the actual virus. And there's loads of uh, viruses, not just COVID in this group. There's exactly. Lots the of them, coronavirus yeah. is a kind of a category. And if you look at it, you know, on a, on a, if you look down a microscope at it, it has a particular look about it. And that's the ring around the virus itself. And so those are called, in this study, they're called enveloped. Uh, so, you know, as in the virus is, is contained within an envelope. Um, and the other ones that don't have a corona are called enteroviruses or enteroviruses and they're non-enveloped. So they, they look quite different and they operate quite differently. Enteroviruses have um, flu uh, influenza in them and meningitis or viral meningitis. That's, uh, those are uh, non-enveloped or enteroviruses. Anyway, the, um, these guys, they, they harvested willow branches. So they went out with chainsaws, cut down some uh, willow tree branches, cut it up, um, froze it down, crushed it up and extracted these chemicals from it just using hot water. And they tested it then on, on lung cells, again in a dish. So the first thing they did was they looked to see if there was cytotoxicity, as in does it harm the cells? And it doesn't. So that was good. Um, and then they tested it with when those cells were exposed to coronaviruses and enteroviruses. And what's interesting was, it seemed to have a protective effect, which is good. It stopped the virus getting into the cells in yeah. case, in the case of enteroviruses. In the case of coronaviruses, it didn't stop them getting into the cell, but when they did get into the cells, they didn't reproduce.
1: Right. So, I mean, is this, uh, you know, we're in the era of antimicrobial resistance. Is this a potential um, alternative? Oh, I suppose this is not um, this is a viral. viral sorry, so viruses
2: yeah. are so sort of, they're, they're, they're tricky things, you know, and one of the good things about this study is that there's so, so there's so many kinds of viruses. So we're looking, or they were looking here at just coronaviruses and enteroviruses, but there's, there's a massive amount of virus and they're all kind of different. What they're really pushing in the study was the fact that it seemed to affect these two types of virus differently, but ultimately had the same effect as in it stopped them infecting the cells. Um, In the case of coronaviruses, this extract seemed to sort of make the, it affected the corona, so it broke down the ring around the virus and that's what stopped it working. In the case of the other viruses, it sort of made them glom together and uh, in a different way stopped them from working. And at the end of the day, they they are calling this a broad spectrum antiviral, which is, which is, you know, it's great. It's what you want, especially if you're going to sell something you can use it against a whole whole range of things you know so it's uh, interesting and potentially useful for that reason um, right uh, thanks for that Oren finally this is an interesting one
1: <laughs> a very strange study Fergus it's to do with rats
0: yes this is where science meets Hollywood this is a brilliant brilliant uh really fun and interesting piece of science. So we're going to have to use our imaginations on this one a little bit, right? So um, this was a study done out of UCLA and some of the headlines that have been generated are both Jedi rats and that rats have imagination. So the first thing we need uh, for this study is you need some rats and you're going to surgically implant some electrodes into their brain, okay? Then you're going to put them on a treadmill ball and you're going to put them into a 360 degree immersive virtual reality arena. And you're going to get them running on this treadmill ball um, as they try to chase after an on-screen goal. And as as they're running, because the goal is moving left and right, uh, the treadmill is turning, and so there, uh, the animals um, or the rats' location is kind of being updated on the VR screen that surrounds them, as if the rat was running through a real environment. Wow! Now, <laughs> when they when the rats eventually reached the on-screen goal, they were given a real prize. So um, I think it was a bit of food and then the process was repeated. And when this was happening, the team of scientists are recording the activity within the rat's brain and they're using a computer system to translate this activity onto specific locations on the VR screen. What they then did is they broke the connection between the treadmill and the VR screen. Okay, And what that means then is that the rats could no longer reach their goal by running on the treadmill okay they had to um, they had to think about the goal okay? right. if that makes sense and because they had already been um, I guess measured as they moved on the treadmill all they needed to do was think and then the VR arena would respond to those thoughts so if the rat in simple terms if the rat thought left the VR arena would move to the left oh my god and so the rats were able to move their way through the maze by thinking essentially (laughs) now this is brilliant because it means that so rats can imagine actually moving through a space but where the Jedi thing comes in and this is this was the test that the scientists called it in the study they call it the Jedi test is they said right so rats can think about moving themselves can they think about moving something else so they trained them in order to be able to move a digital object uh, from one part of the screen over to another and get it to rest there for a few seconds. And once they did that, they were then given a reward. So that's the Jedi mind trick. It's the ability to move something in you know, all the way. Like with of your mind. With your mind, moving things, stopping things with your mind. Um, and it's, it's generated these amazing headlines all over the world. There has been a slight bit of detraction on it because if you think about it, like the way uh, kind of one of the detractors said is that it's almost, and it's not like the rat is sort of kind of imagining, you know, that is something that humans are brilliant at. If I ask you to picture up Christmas, you can instantly do it. Yeah. But what, it, it, it appears that the rats are almost like anticipating the next frame of a movie, say, as opposed to the movie stopping and the rats imagining what happens after that. I see. Which is a slight distinction, but um, nonetheless,
1: Amazing! I mean, amazing that they were given funding to do this. Amazing! amazing. And a, 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 amazing research. What I mean, what what do we learn from that? Is that um, rats have uh, the ability to um, to to imagine where they want to go without physically needing to see it. So, like, they have some sort of ability to conceive
0: of a path or journey. Yeah. So it's kind of linked a little bit. To memory as well so like it's almost saying are there any other mammals that can even start the process of imagination and perhaps there is Absolutely amazing If you like that uh, you might want to check out
1: Fergus uh, on the new season of 10 Things to Know About it starts tomorrow Monday 13th of November at 8.30pm on RTE1 there are some other lame duck presenters in there as well um, but uh, check it out 8.30pm RTE1 Dr Fergus McCall from iCrag and uh, Dr Oren Kennedy from RCSI thanks very much So it's an exciting time for Irish science because finally, after months and months and months of delay, Ireland's first ever satellite will be launching into space very, very shortly. Uh, David McEwan is engineering manager at AirSat1. He joins me now. Uh, David, um, exactly how long has it been since you first thought of or, or your team first thought of an idea of putting a satellite into space before actually getting this one? into space although it hasn't actually gotten there yet it's not there yet it'll be there hopefully
3: at the end of the month um so idea started 2016 it was selected uh on the uh, european space agency flyer satellite program in 2017 uh and since then we've been building it uh so we have been uh, initial idea then six years six and a half years uh to actually design build test and once it launches operate our satellite so everything built in ireland uh so it's going to be the
1: first of its kind. Why is your team so slow?
3: Yeah, I know. Can we not do it quicker? <laughs> well, we're, we've gone through the full process of, of like a real satellite for European Space Agency. So a lot of what this project is about is, is, is education. Uh, and these are skills we just don't have in Ireland uh, until now. So we have ESA experts helping us, or ESA European Space Agency experts helping us along, along each step, which means we follow all the proper rules and we do all the paperwork and all the documentation. Um, and it takes a long time. Uh, space is hard and we want it to work when it gets there.
1: Yeah, that's that's really important after all this time. So tell me exactly what is this satellite? What does it look like and what does it do? Yeah, so AirSat 1, it is a 2U CubeSat, which means it's a satellite
3: which is about the size of a shoebox or a or one-liter milk carton, something like this size. Um, so it's uh, 2U means uh it is two units one unit is 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters so it's 20 by 10 by 10 centimeters so it's small but it kind don't of make me advantage. do math david sorry uh it, it's small but it uh, has a lot inside so it's kind of these uh, satellites are kind of it's like your phone and the technology gets smaller and smaller the sensors are smaller uh, the detectors are smaller all the science inside is smaller but they they pack a big punch um so because of this form factor, allows universities uh, to, to build them uh, kind of for the first time. Um, so it goes up uh, with other satellites uh, f- for launch, um, and it will detect gamma ray bursts uh, with a detector that's been built in UCD physics. It has uh, thermal control coatings uh, built in collaboration with a company called mBio, and it has uh, attitude control systems. It can turn it has new mathematics that allows it to point itself and and, and reorientate itself in space. So it's three payloads that have all been developed uh, in Ireland.
1: So this satellite will fly around on its own, like it's not connected or or it's not a module on the space station or anything. It literally will manage itself entirely. Exactly. So it's a self-contained satellite. That whole box that I
3: said it fits in is, is ours. It powers itself through solar panels on its side. So it recharges its batteries. So it's, it's alive uh, for, for the whole time. When it goes over Dublin, we can talk to it. We've built a ground station. Uh, uh, we've built a backup ground station as well. So over radio link, we, we can talk, and we can get the data back from the experiments, or we can do telecommands up and tell it to do a new, a new, uh, new scenario or something different. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a completely independent uh, satellite. It just
1: That is uh, so not. cool. That is so cool that uh, when it goes above Dublin, you can send off messages and get it to do things you want it to do. Like, it's, it's you know, we're talking a very, a very real analogue of what space missions are like. Can I ask you, um, how does it move around? You, you know, you said it can sort of direction itself. I mean, it doesn't have thrusters, presumably something that size. No, so it doesn't have any propellant
3: or propulsion. Uh, what it's got is something called magnet torquers. Uh, so Ooh. you have your, oh yeah, sounds good, right? So we are up there, uh, you're in the earth's magnetic field. So the earth's a magnet. Um, and then we can turn our spacecraft into a magnet itself. So we have coils, uh, uh, in the solar panels of our satellite. We put electricity through that current through that. The satellite becomes a magnet and then you can repel and attract, like you'd have two fridge magnets and you were playing around with them. So that allows us to not go up or down in orbit, but to orientate the, the, the direction the satellite is, is facing. Um, so we could face that um, near the earth or the sun or in, in between or anything like that. So we, we can test that. Uh, so one of our, our payloads uh, tests how we use our sensors and, and how uh, we use that information to move it in a kind of smooth and, and uh, nice way.
1: So over the six years, was there any point that you thought we're not going to get here? because it has been a very long time and things go wrong in engineering all the time, particularly, I believe, under your charge. <laughs> um, no,
3: we're really stubborn. So I think we, we always believed we'd get there. Um, we know, like, making mistakes, we've made loads of mistakes and and, and, and failures and such like along the way, but the, the, the idea is to follow a kind of professional process and make sure that we just learn from the mistakes and move on. Um, so I, I don't think at any stage I thought, we wouldn't get there. I would like if we got there a little bit uh, quicker, but this is as long as, as it, uh, it takes. and uh, it, It's good. But yeah, we, we learned a lot. We didn't know, Ireland didn't know how to build a satellite six years ago. Um, so we, we've learned all those skills and we've tried to put in the processes. So the next time we build one, then it, it'll be easier. And it's, you're not starting from scratch.
1: You say Ireland didn't know how to build a satellite. What exactly is different about a satellite than, for example, just putting a computer in space with a, you know with a radar on it?
3: Yeah, so it there's does, does a, a lot of systems engineering skills. So the whole thing is linked. So you have a computer, you have an onboard computer. So there's one of the boards in the satellite is basically, you know, like a laptop or your phone or something like this. Um, but then you have your thermal management. So how do you keep the, the temperature control of the satellite, the structure? How do you keep that? It survives the launch. So we have to shake it. Uh, we have to make sure it works in a vacuum. We have to make sure that it has enough power. And when you change one or two of these things, uh, it affects all the other things. So this is what we call a system. So you can't just say, oh, I'm going to put it 100 kilometers further up because then it ha- it'll be cooler. And then we may not get, does it, is it going to get as much sunlight? Is it going to get more sunlight? Everything is linked. So, so understanding how a whole satellite works together is a skill that you only really learn when you build a satellite. That's not the same as building, you know, just a, a widget or a machine. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, skills that just weren't weren't there uh but we've built up the tools we've built up the testing for it as well so how do you know that your satellite is going to work um so we have you know we, i talked about the earth's magnetic field and reacting against it we have a helmholtz cage now which which recreates a magnetic field in three dimensions that we can test our satellite in nice. uh, we have fake sun sources that test the sun sensors uh, we have turntables to move around the satellite um, ground stations, like I said, fake GPS, this kind of stuff, radio uh, links, all these things, the the the, the test equipment for that wasn't here. Uh, And then we also used the European Space Agency test equipment to test it in a vacuum, test it uh, to mimic the launch itself and see if it would survive. So, um, and how to create a test, how to, like, manage something like that uh also i talked about documentation but there's a whole process to this that you just can't show up with your satellite and go okay put that in that oven and see if it survives you got you you got to write that you have a test that you know afterwards you can be sure or happy that it's the satellite survived
1: how much um have you been sort of restricted or enabled by the european space agency because obviously there's um there's strict rules as to what goes on board a spacecraft. You've got to meet certain um, specifications before they even be allowed anywhere near it. Um, but also, presumably, their expertise has been a huge help. Um, talk to me a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, so they're, they've been fantastic.
3: So the, as I said, the, the mission is only taking part. They're providing uh, the launch. So they've given us all these areas that I mentioned, like, like thermal or structural or control or software. They provided experts from uh, from from who were, who are involved in, in big full scale billion your <laughs> billionaire year uh and they're given us skills. So we wouldn't get access to that when I've been part of, of this uh, this program with them. In, in terms of, they're not there is rules about going to space. So just there are different materials that you, you put up. So sometimes you go up into a vacuum, they outgas, so you get gases coming out of your materials, and they may damage something else, or there might be. Uh, they might cold well where they stick together and this kind of thing. So, but there's just lists of materials and they would have guided us through uh, that. And, and as it goes on, we get better and we're more understand the kind of process, uh, for all that. So the documentation, the paperwork keeps you honest. Uh, it kind of keeps you from being, "Ah, should be fine. Uh, kind of, uh, a view. it's like, no, we got to, you got to justify all the design decisions that you make along the way. Uh, right. so if you say, oh, we're going to do this, why? And then, and give a reason. Um, and then they check it so we go through a, a flight review at different stages during the project we'd had different milestones where we had to say this satellite's going to work this design's going to work then we have to say we've tested it and proved it's going to work and eventually we had a, a, our last uh, review uh not that long ago where the whole panel said it's now space ready you can have your ticket to space which is a pretty cool thing to happen
1: it's a very cool thing to happen so um it's a long way from, uh, you know, Mentos and, and uh, Coca-Cola um, <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the, the, the engineering, the time and effort that's gone into uh, doing something like this. How nervous are you about the launch? Because sometimes these launches go bad, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, there's not much we can do about the launch. The launch is our ticket to space. It's our bus. It's our, it's our you know, our, our, our plane to space. Uh, and it's slightly different than what the actual satellite itself that we, we kind of built. So the launch will happen, and in you know a half an hour we'll we'll be up there, and it'll be all it'll be all finished. Um, so fingers crossed on that. Basically, it'll be very disappointing if it doesn't it doesn't work, but it's kind of out of our control. We're, we're, we've bought our ticket, and, and it'll be good. The more I guess, ex- I know, that's very exciting. But what happens is after it gets thrown out of the rocket itself, um, about three hours after that, we'll hope to get what we call acquisition of signal. So that's the first time our ground station will pick up the satellite and see if it's alive. So around that time, we're going to be waiting for the signal to come down uh, in mission control here in UCD. And uh, yeah, it'll either come or it won't, um, or or it'll come later. But uh, that's the nervous time. So if we get a signal, uh, that's that's kind of the the ultimate success. Uh, Now, we say we've been successful to get this far, but. But, you know uh, obviously <laughs> getting some sort Results of uh, signal okay we want to operate it we want to we we want to we spend an awful lot of time training ourselves how to operate a satellite as well um, so we want to put those skills uh, into use get data back from the experiments share it with people uh, and share we, we're gonna have a, a dashboard kind of website where people can see the data coming back from the satellite so we want people around Ireland also to be able to Understand that we have a satellite and we have a, a space industry in Ireland, uh, and, and see you know what the temperature of the batteries are and where it is in the world and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, so we're doing a good lot of stuff around schools and, and resources and stuff for that.
1: Yeah, you talked um, about this project being a lot about education, and you know, huge credit to you and the team at UCD. This is an enormous project, and it's it's so exciting to get to this phase, but. What will that education yield, do you think? I mean, is it possible that we, we can start building space capabilities out of UCD and out of other um, organizations in Ireland to really um, develop, like, some small space capability um, beyond what we do now? I know we we have some companies in Ireland already working on materials and, and, and other things, for, but it feels like a, a good time to coalesce into the Irish Space Agency, you know? Yeah,
3: so we we have we do have space industry. We have companies that are are uh, producing uh, products and, and cameras for space and, and all the things that you mentioned there. Uh, and they need people to go in there. But we're also we're entering this kind of world of new space where there's, there's great opportunity for small countries to to do big things. Uh, the space industry is going to be worth one trillion euro uh, by 2040. Does Ireland want to be part of it? Do we want to have? the new ideas, the, the important bit of, of a university is, is to doing the research and creating the new things that maybe companies don't have you know, the time to do uh, themselves. Can these students go out and then form companies, join these companies? And uh, yeah, like you say, the building up our in, present uh, in space is, is important to us. As it's one of the, hopefully, the long-term uh, impacts of the project. It's big in Scotland, it's big in countries like Belgium and Luxembourg and New Zealand that are, are similar sized populations to uh, to us. Uh, so there's no reason why uh, this can't be a catalyst to, to growth in, in the Irish space industry.
1: Now, interestingly enough, this launch is not happening um, in French Guiana, um, in Kourou, where um, many of the European space agency launches happen from. Where will you be for the launch?
3: So we're going to be in Vandenberg Space Force Base uh, over in California. Um, so we're one of the passengers. These what we is a, is a ride share. So you have a kind of main payload, the biggest satellite sits on top uh, with priority. And then you have uh, smaller satellites that, that's like ours that will sit under.
1: Uh, and in, they, economy.
3: Uh, yeah, you were in economy. Yeah, you're wearing economy. Yeah, glass, no, <laughs> no, the, the fancy stuff. So it, it, it'll work. Yeah, once we're up there, then, then the real fun starts.
1: The best of luck. David McCone from UCD, engineering manager of AirSat1, Ireland's first ever satellite launching at the end of this month. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. He seems pretty relaxed. Um, uh, I think, I'm I I'm think not sure I would be, um, but he seems pretty chill about the whole thing. Uh, 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 it would be really, really exciting to get that first signal. So um, follow us on Twitter. We'll be retweeting um, AirSat1, and AirSat1 has its own Twitter account, so you can follow along there as well. Uh, very exciting time for Irish uh, Science. Okay, it's time to look back at some of your comments from uh, last week's programme. Um, we were talking about Focus, because I was away recording a documentary in uh, uh, in the Galapagos, I'll say that lots over the next while. Um, but uh, we were talking about focus and uh, and how we're we're sort of being trained to lose our focus by devices and social media and so on. Elaine said, "Fantastic, love this segment." Johan is so interesting. Book is really good too, so look out for it. Johan Harry is the guy. Uh, Stolen Focus is the name of the book. Um, we were talking about ChatGPT, and someone says we're told ChatGPT is a form of AI, but still has a left wing bias on certain topics. In my opinion. I think it does, and I think it probably is because a lot of the media traditionally has been left-wing. I mean, that that is being repopulated very much by the right-wing um, media groups in America, but the media does globally, I think, often have a leftish sort of a bias. Um, and so I'm not surprised that there is a bit of a bias, you know, that's the data in, data out uh, situation. Another says, its creativity is based on the actual work of humans. Well, of course it is, absolutely. It's, it's made by humans. Um, but what, what is really interesting is that it's starting to do things that you could say are inspired by humans, but you certainly couldn't say were made by humans, that some of the art and some of the creativity that's coming from ChatGPT is so stark and so surprising because it it. it It never existed before. It wasn't created by a human. It was inspired by a human and by mixing ideas together. In that way, I think it is possible to say that ChatGPT is creative uh, in a sense. And then we got a a tweet in from YT Show Notes and it can summarize the program uh, of Futureproof if you put in a prompt by ChatGPT. And it took a summary from the program and it gave me like seven bullet points of what the program sounds like. Hardly as entertaining, I would imagine, as the program. But if you wanted to just get a, like a blink list of what the show is, you can use this account, uh, YT Show Notes. I think it's quite cool. Another person says, I've said it again and again, social media poses a really serious threat to society. And whereas Dr. Frankenstein invented a monster that he couldn't control, Mark Zuckerberg has invented an even worse monster that he doesn't want to control. Um, he's just one of many um, uh, that are guilty at this point, I would say. But I think people are very well aware of the, the, the problem with social media. Did this person tweet this, Moraes, um, or was it an email? Could have been a text. Okay, so this person's obviously staying away from social media and commentating it from outside that bubble. So congratulations to you, ma'am or sir. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Uh, thanks to Moraes O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, John Byrne, Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more in your Future Proof podcast feed on Tuesday. Don't know why that's tripping me up. Uh, in the meantime, stay curious. Future proof with Jonathan McRae.
2: Proudly
0: supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on
1: News Talk.